0: The question came from the back seat of our vehicle from my daughter, always the sharp one. She said this, Dad, did you know that in the new dictionary they've taken out the word gullible? And my response was, you're kidding. I'm just going to pause and let that settle in on you. I should have known that Lauren was pulling one on me. Um, that's not one of my proudest moments, just so you know. Check it out. You'll find that gullible is still in the dictionary, but it's uh, kind of a dull moment. My question for, for you, to you today as we begin is, how sharp are you? I would encourage you to be a little careful about how you answer that, but I would like for you to consider it. Welcome back to The Chase. We took a couple of weeks off because of vacation and because of Easter, but we're back into our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. And so if you have your Bible with you, I would encourage you to go with me to Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And our text today will be just one verse, although we'll pull in some other verses as we go through. But now we move towards the finish line of the chase. We've been eavesdropping on the preacher, as we have come to call the writer of Ecclesiastes, as he has been working his way through his own quest, his own chase for meaning and fulfillment in life. And as you know, along the way, we have known him to be rather pessimistic and disillusioned about life. But now in these last three weeks, today in the next two weeks, as we finish out this series, we find that he begins to kind of lean forward into the finish line, and he lays some principles for us that will help us to take all those lessons that he's given us up to this point and to kind of solidify a proper way for us to live. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 is where we are today. And let me just stop for a moment and let's see if we can find ourselves with him along this journey. We've known him to be rather pessimistic, as I said, and somewhat disillusioned about some things in life. You ever find yourself disillusioned? Maybe frustrated with things, but especially disillusioned where you you give yourself to something and you pour yourself into something And you get there and you find out it's not all that you thought it was going to be. That happened with me not all that long ago in my life. I had uh, a real burden as we lived in deep south Texas. A lot of pastors, a lot of small churches in that area with pastors who had either come up out of Mexico or maybe they uh, were native to that particular area. But for a variety of reasons, they were unable to pursue any kind of theological education. Uh, which I believe is a critical thing for pastors, and so I had this burden for those men. And the more of them I met, and the more of their churches that I went into, the more I had this burden and this passion about helping to bring some kind of theological education opportunity to them down in deep South Texas. That was hard to do. It's a large area, and difficult to get some of our higher institute or. uh, Institutes of Higher Education to come down there, and so it was one of those things that kind of laid out there for a while and always bugged me. Then I had the opportunity. I got a phone call from one of our state nominating committees, and they asked me to be on the board for one of the institutions in Deep South Texas. It really was not so much an education uh, facility, even though it had that in its name, And so as that call came my way, I thought about being, or taking them up on the offer that they had given, being on that board, and finally I thought, I'm not so sure that that really addresses my passion. And so I sat down with one of them and one of the directors and had the opportunity to listen to what their vision was, and it meshed perfectly. They wanted to bring formal education to the pastors of Deep South Texas. It fit exactly with what my concern was and my burden was, and so I enthusiastically said that I would do it. The disillusionment came when I went to a meeting, a training session for board members, and we were in Dallas and we were in, you know, one of the big buildings up there where what I call the Baptist head shed and that's we were kind of there and, and I was halfway through the day of training. we were at lunch and I was standing in the lunch line, always my favorite, since I was a kid, always my favorite. <laughs> and while we were standing in the lunch line, a couple of people had the audacity to pull me out of line and begin to lay out for me the real reason that I had been asked to be on that board. As it turns out, there was a power struggle. There were some leadership issues, and they wanted some people to go in there and clean house, essentially, and so somehow they felt like I was the guy to help them do that. And all of the anticipation I had for helping out pastors in that area suddenly was gone. You know, the reality is you don't have to look very hard to find disillusioned people in life these days. A lot of chases going on, a lot of quests for meaning, and a lot of dead ends in that chase. That's where we've been with the preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, and we've found a number of times for him that life seems to have lost its luster. And We come to this section now, this, this ending part of the book, And he has found some help, and he points us to some help. And so if you're here today and you're disillusioned with the whole church thing, or maybe you're you're disillusioned with the whole life thing, then I think that it's a good day for you to be here because what we will find is the beginning of some answers. As, As we will take snapshots of what he says in this tail end of the book, one of the things that he says to us is that you need to get wisdom. Be sharp. We find a turn in the way the book of Ecclesiastes is written in chapter 9 and verse 13. He begins now to employ proverbial sayings, those short, pithy kind of statements of truth that are designed to help give a snapshot of something that you can apply into your life. That's why we find ourselves in chapter 10 today. Let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about, uh, and then you can go home and study this on your own. Chapter 10, verse 1, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. He, he's, he's adept at taking language and painting word pictures for us. That's why we find in chapter 10, verse 10, our text for the day, this word picture, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. Tucked away in this stretch of these proverbial sayings is this verse 10, and it begins to form something of a foundation for us as we move forward and we try to settle some truths as it relates to our own quest For fulfillment in life. It's an interesting way of saying it, this word picture in verse 10. Let me give you shorthand from some Old Testament scholars. James Crenshaw says it this way Wisdom is useless if a person is not to put it to work for some benefit. Trimper Longman III says this way, success is the fruit of wisdom. I like better what my dad used to say to me. I suppose he said it to me 100,000 times as a kid. Son, work smarter, not harder. That's verse 10. I didn't realize when I sat in my professor's office when I was just about to graduate from college that he was pulling scripture on me to answer my question, I'm dull like that. Sometimes I just don't really get it all, and so let me let me back it up for you. I was finishing up my time as a college student at Wayland Baptist University, Plainview, Texas. Uh, I was recently ordained. As a matter of fact, in December of the year just before I graduated, they, the church uh, allowed me to be ordained. They ordained me there, and, and one of the things that happens in North Texas—I don't know if we do it out here in West Texas—but um, they when they do an ordination council for pastors, they invite pastors from all over the area to come in. Now, that's a bit of a daunting thing to come into a grilling session where I was the only one all by myself, and guys coming in and I didn't know anything about, and they're firing questions about scripture, about church history, about Baptist history, about polity, all of those kind of things that come with being ordained. And so I studied hard to be ready for that. I just almost died when one of my professors walked in the door. But coming out of that time of ordination, the director of missions for that area, we called them area missionaries in those days, that the thing to do when you graduate from college as a minister is you go to Fort Worth in those days and you get a master's degree and you continue your formal education. Teresa and I talked about it. We kind of had that settled. But when the director of missions pulled me aside, he had been in that uh, ordination council, he said, you know, Mark, if you decide you want to stay here, He said, we have a number of churches up here who need pastors. I'm pretty sure that one of them would love to call you as a pastor. You have to understand that in those days, I had a son who was probably two and a half, three years old, and a wife, and it was time to support them. And So all of a sudden, my plans to go off to seminary were thrown into limbo. Do I stay and minister in a church, or do I go off to seminary? And Teresa and I talked about it. We prayed about It got no real answer. So finally I decided that I would go and ask one of my professors. His name was Dr. Fred Meeks. He was pastor at First Baptist Church of Plainview when we got there. And so we had joined that church. He was my pastor for several months. And then he resigned and became a professor at the at the college where I was. And so then he was not my pastor, he was my theology professor and doctrine professor and uh, generally one of my mentors. So this question kept nagging. What do I do? Do I go off to college? Do I stay? I'm not sure what I need to do. And so I called Dr. Meeks and made an appointment, and I found myself into his office one day. And I laid it out for him. I said, Dr. Meeks, I'm just not really sure what I should do. And he he I didn't know he was using scripture on me, but he was. And so he said this, Mark, let me just say it to you this way. You can cut wood with an axe. You can cut wood with a dull axe, but you can cut more wood more efficiently if the axe is sharpened. And I said, okay, <laughs> um, well, what does that have to do with my question that I asked you? I didn't know he was pulling scripture on me, but that's directly out of chapter 10, verse 10 of the book of Ecclesiastes. And so he knew that I was a dull student, and so he said, okay, so let me put it this way. As a minister, we have equipped you here at Wayland Baptist University to go and pastor church, to be on various church staffs doing any number of things. We've equipped you to do ministry, but if you will go to seminary, they will sharpen you, and you will be more equipped, better equipped, and more efficiently able to minister with people, not just now, but as you go forward. And I thought, okay, that I can get. So how sharp are you? This doesn't really have that much to do with being a minister, although it applies in a ministerial context, clearly. In your day-to-day life, in your own quest for meaning, for fulfillment, for direction in life, how sharp are you? One more time, verse 10, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. Be sharp. Or we might say it in a little more, with a little more clarity. He, he is also saying with this, use your head, now, I, I do this when I say that because I, I flash back to the time that I was coaching one of my son's soccer teams. Actually, I was an assistant coach, and this team was uh, really good. And my son, who is kind of a natural athlete, was not one of the elite athletes. And so one of the things that would happen with my son in this is he would get so into a game, he would be so emotionally invested and competitively invested in it that he would just just like lose sense of what he was doing and playing soccer. He'd be all over the field instead of playing his position. And so I, I learned this technique with him that when he started doing that in a game that I would call out his name, he would turn over and look at me, and I would just simply do this which is a way of saying with the writer of Ecclesiastes use your head don't just expend all kinds of energy and life trying to find something the writer of Hebrews I mean excuse me of Ecclesiastes says use your head be sharp wisdom is that sharpening agent for us that's the message of verse 10 I suppose I could say to you there's the sermon you're free to go well, you're always free to go you don't have to sit through it but I would hope that you stick around long enough because that's the lesson of verse 10. He speaks to that well, but what he doesn't say to us is, okay, so if wisdom is that sharpening agent in my life, how do I get wisdom? So let me be very practical for the rest of this message, and let's look at four different ways. If we have time, we'll get to four. Different ways that wisdom is acquired and wisdom is built up in our lives. Four different ways to see to it that we are sharp in the way we live our lives. Here's the first one. Experience. You know, the old saying says, wisdom comes from experience and usually from bad experience. Learning through experience is one of those things that can be an effective sharpener. Now, I use the phrase, or I, I clarify that by saying it can be effective because I've known enough people who are like me that just because you have an experience doesn't mean that you gain wisdom out of it. I, I, had, this to me. I had this happen to me a year ago, right at a year ago now. I decided uh, that I would take up woodworking as a hobby. And uh, Teresa and I had needed some things at the house, some shelves built and cabinets. And so I thought, you know, I'll just pick up woodworking and I'll, I'll be able to do some of those things from the house. Now, I've since given up that hobby since I moved to El Paso because I met some real woodworkers here who do it as a hobby. And I get arrested for impersonating a woodworker, I'm afraid. But in those days, I thought, this is something I can do. And so a friend of mine and I were talking one day and uh, he said, hey, I hear that you're taking up woodworking I said, yeah. He said, what kind of tools do you have? And so I kind of walked him through the stuff that I had, and I was kind of in the acquisition mode of tools to do that. And he said, you know what? My dad has a table saw that was given to him. He's actually got two. This one's been out in the shed for a while. He said, if you want it, I'll give it to you. I said, well, I don't know. Okay, sure. You betcha. Okay. And so he brought it over to the house, and as we were unloading it in my garage, he said, now let me warn you. He said, you really need to be careful about, this, about the kickback that can happen while you're cutting wood. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know all of that stuff. You see, I was in wood shop when I was in middle school. I know all about tools. <laughs> and so... About the third time that I used that table saw in the first two weeks that I had it, about the third time I think it was, when I was reminded exactly what kickback is. Nearly broke my wrist and almost took a board to the face because I didn't listen to what my friend told me. But I can assure you that I have some wisdom about kickback now. So much so that I left that table saw behind when I moved to El Paso. You see, the reality is that experience can be effective or it can be ignored. I don't know how you are, but I'll say it this way. Sharp, wise people keep their head in the game because there's much to learn from experience. You know, that can be experience. Experience can be a challenging and painful thing. Exhibit A, to underscore that truth, is that game called Candy Crush. Now, I don't play that game called Candy Crush because I've known too many people who are so frustrated with it. You, they, they tell me, I don't get this, they say, you should, you should play this game. You should download it on your phone, and you should play. And then I see them And everybody else who's ever played that game, as far as I know, gets so frustrated with it. And here's the experience part. The experience part of that is you you have to go from one level to the next, but the levels get increasingly difficult. And some people I've known being on single levels for months at a time, why would I choose to do that? My life's frustrated enough without pulling a game in. If it was only a game, it would be one thing. But the reality is sometimes in our lives, the experience opportunity for gaining wisdom is lost on us and we repeat the same experience as painful as it is time after time after time after time whether it's finances or relationships or any number of things we should learn from our experiences here's a good prayer for you if you just needing a good prayer? God, what do you want me to learn from this experience? You know what? If you'll ask that question as soon as you realize the experience is difficult, it might help you gain enough wisdom not to have to repeat the lesson. So one source for wisdom is experience. Here's another one. It's people. In other words, we have the opportunity to learn from people. And in the learning, maybe it's their experience that we're watching in them that gives us some wisdom. I can watch this person go through that problem, and if I'm paying attention well enough, I can see that and go, okay, I don't want to have that problem. What might I draw from that that keeps me from going there myself? You know, our whole education system, if I understand it right, our entire education system is built on this truth, How hard would it be if every one of us, if each one of us, had to learn everything for ourselves? You had to teach yourself how to tie a shoe. You had to teach yourself what a shoe was. You had to teach yourself what you could eat and what you could not eat. You know, we have the great opportunity to have people in our lives, some of whom are paid to be in our lives— so that we might gain wisdom from them. It's an incredible thing. But all of us don't pay attention to that. All of us don't allow that very much because we have... um, Well, let me say it this way. This might help you some. Uh, My grandson, I told you that we were in East Texas a couple of weeks ago, and I had the opportunity or the assignment, whichever one you want to call it, to kind of be the one to keep up with my two-and-a-half-year-old grandson. For the better part of a week. I was so glad to leave him behind and come back home to El Paso. That boy is all energy. So one boy, one of the things that I did with him a couple of different times, several times through the week, was take him to school. And one of those times I took him by myself. I had some, I went up to see my mom for the day and go to the doctor with her. And I came back down and picked him up on the way home. Just the two of us in the car. That boy never Well, okay, he just never shuts up. That's the best way to say it. That's the best way to say it. And so we got to the house. Now, you know, state law is that you have to have kids who are two and a half years old in a car seat. And if you haven't been around young children like that age in a while, let me explain these car seats for you, all right? You remember Harry Houdini and the straitjacket thing? That's these car seats. You have to have an engineering degree to figure out how to get somebody in that thing. And so I I managed to get him in, and when we got back to the house, it was time to get him out. We pulled into the driveway, and so I got out. I went around. He was sitting immediately behind me in the back seat. And so I went in to start trying to unbuckle that thing with all of the different latches and buckles and all, and and he was already working on it. Now, he's two and a half years old. And so I I reached in to help him because I knew there was no way he was going to do it. And as soon as I reached in and moved his hands out of the way so that I could get to it, he said, no, doc, I do it. And and I'm I'm dull. I told you that when we started. And so I did. I I said, no, I'll get it. And no, doc, I do it. Okay. I thought, got to be high entertainment value in this. And so I let him work at it for a while. And he worked at it for a while. And he knew what to do, he just couldn't quite pull it off. And so finally, I got tired of standing there. I said, Let me teach you how to do it. I'll get back to that in a minute. And so I I said, Take this. And he pushed my hands away. He said, No, doc, I do it. I tell you that because my experience in life is that many, many, many people have a no doc, I do it approach to life. In Western society, we magnify and celebrate individual accomplishments. Now, we do the team thing okay, not nearly like Eastern society does, but Western society amplifies and endorses and celebrates individual accomplishment. And I'm going to just say to you, if, that, if that's who you are, with all of the positives that that can bring you, You need to learn how to learn from other people. We say that in a variety of ways. Do you have a teachable spirit? If you don't, Scripture would say that you're a dull person. and If you happen to be one of those who's inclined to go it alone, and and you have that rugged individualism about you, let me just take you to a couple of places in Scripture. I'm just going to read a few verses here. But if we were to go back to the book of Proverbs, uh, actually from verse 8 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 7, we have this recurring statement, a recurring theme in that early section of Proverbs. And the the word that I, or the two words that I want you to get is the repetition in there of these words, my son. So in Proverbs 1, Beginning in verse 8, we read this. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Verse 10, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. I'm going to stop reading there because we could go all the way through verse 16 or even verse 19. But I want you to hear those words echoing out as it relates to one of the ways that we learn wisdom is through other people my son. I just have to tell you, and I'm not proud of this, it is just truth, that for many years of my life, I chose not to listen to the wisdom that my mom and my dad, especially my dad, tried to lay on me. I was just like some of you, maybe most of you, that rebellious kind of a kid who was... Noted whether I said it or not, my actions always said, no, doc, I do it. And God gave me wise, incredibly wise parents. And for many years, I chose not to let them speak wisdom into my life. And I paid the price for that. But there came a day, as I began to try to get my life, my spiritual life back in order, I began to listen to some of what my parents had to say, and I found out that they're relatively smart, wise people. And then God made me go work with my dad, something I never would have chosen to do. And then in those years that I worked with him, I found that he was incredibly wise. So much so that he he used to use these earthy sayings that had great wisdom. Especially applied into leadership, and then in my case, and his applied into a church leadership. For instance, here's one of those earthy sayings every tub sits on its own bottom. You know what that means? Well, that'll be another series down the road somewhere. Actually, one of these days. I intend to write a book that's based on leadership that takes what he taught me about that and put it in a modern leadership context because the reality is he said things in short ways that made incredible sense and helped me avoid all kinds of trouble, even in the job that I do now. If we don't allow ourselves to be taught by other people, we're in trouble We'll have to learn the hard way. You won't learn nearly as much that way. It's a lot longer that road is. My son, hear my instruction, the Proverbs says. And then there came another day in my life. Then came the day that I was the father speaking those words My son, hear my instruction. I have two sons and a daughter, they need wisdom. You know their dad. You know they need wisdom. And so I began to understand my role with them, not just to get them up and out of my house, although that was usually my primary goal, just get out of my house. That's really not true. My goal, Teresa and I talked about it many times as they were kids, we wanted them to come to know Jesus Christ and to live for him, and then secondarily we wanted them to be contributing members to society. So that when they did leave our house, they had something to offer to this world. And so it involved us pouring ourselves into them, even when we were tired. Even when they wouldn't listen. I say that because I want us to hear this especially if you happen to be a leader in our church a lay leadership or some kind of an elected position the reality is that every church and ours is no exception to this every church has a continuing responsibility to make sure that the up and coming generations have been given the mentoring and the teaching that they need to be wise because one of these days you and I will be old enough that we're going to have to hand off the leadership of this church to somebody else we have a responsibility to pass on wisdom to those who are younger than us. That's a great place for an amen. You missed your chance. Maybe next time. So are you allowing other people to sharpen you? Are you sharpening other people? The third source for wisdom, I could have started with this one. I was actually started to Start with this one, but then I figured you might not listen because everybody's expecting this one. Source for wisdom clearly has got to be God's word for us. I don't have time to go to Hebrews 4.12 or 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, but both of those passages of Scripture have something to say about the validity and the viability and the value of Scripture as it relates to how we live our lives and the building of wisdom. Let me put it to you this way. If I have problem with my car. Let's say that as I'm leaving church today, one of those lights on the dashboard comes up that I've never seen before, and it comes on and it says something. You better do something about something. If I get that, I'm going to go to the owner's manual that I keep in my glove box of my car. I'm going to pull it out, and I'm going to say, oh, that means that I need this, whatever this happens to be. That's the value of an owner's manual. I would submit to you that Scripture is God's very own owner's manual for our lives. He's the one who designed life. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who directs life. And what we need to do that is found in the words of Scripture and the Holy Spirit as he enlivens those words within us. And so if you really want wisdom, then I to say it to you the way my dad said it to me when I first surrendered to the ministry. The first thing he said to me was, son, you need to make friends with God's Word. You're going to be responsible for the spiritual development and lives of people and the care that comes with that. And so you will not be able to do that unless you make friends with God's Word. What role does Scripture play in your life? I'm not talking about to come to church and get it on Sunday morning, either in Sunday school or in the worship service. That's like eating baby food. That's what somebody else chewed up and gave you. Are you studying Scripture For the value that it gives you in being a sharp liver. I don't mean that kind of liver. I mean living out your life. Speaking of life, that's the fourth source for wisdom. As you go through life, pay attention. I could take you to Proverbs 8. I mean, I'll just do this. Proverbs 8, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. We could work our way through the early part of the book of Proverbs, and wisdom is personified as a woman standing in the streets calling out, hey, there's something here. If we just pay attention to life, we have the great opportunity of learning. One of my professors told the story of walking with one of his young children down the street one day, and they came across a dead sparrow laying on the sidewalk. And he talked about how they stopped. They knelt down and they looked at that bird, and my professor started telling that young child about how life is and how death comes into life. Teachable moments in life are important for us, and if we will pay attention, teachable moments are all over the place. How sharp are you? I close with one other verse of Scripture. I do this because I know some of you have been waiting the whole sermon for me to get to it, wondering if I would make it. Where do you get wisdom? How can you be sharp? How do you keep your head in the game? Ultimately, Proverbs 1-7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The reality is that if you really want wisdom, if you really want to make sense of the chase that you're in, if you really want to find the fulfillment that all of the world is looking for, it begins with the fear of the Lord. I'll talk a little bit more about the fear of the Lord tonight in our Bible study, but for this morning... Let me just leave it here for you. If you are living, let me say it this way, you need to come to that point where you live your life always under the acknowledgement that God is and that he is involved and that he loves you. What better place to go to make sense of life and to find fulfillment than in the one who gives life? How is it with you? How sharp are you? Are you willing to do what you have to to get sharper? Let's pray. And as we pray, I ask you to personalize the message today. Where's God in this for you? Have you come to the point, like that verse in Proverbs says, where you fear God, not to shrink back in terror, but in the acknowledgement of and the submission that comes to knowing that He is the one who designs life. Do you know Him? If you don't know Him, why don't you? Why, why would anyone having the opportunity to come to know the one who gives life walk away from that? Today's an opportunity for that. This invitation time is designed for that. And so, Father, we ask that you would move in the hearts of people today that if they are here and they don't know you, are here and they're frustrated with life and the the disillusionment of it all, even of religion, is such that it presents a hurdle for them moving forward. That they would see in you the only hope of making sense of life and respond appropriately today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you to stand, if you will. Any decision that you feel like the Lord's leading to, join the church rededicate your life. Maybe you just want to come up here and pray. We won't bother you.